Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 71. I'm Tian and Duyeb, and it is lovely to be back in your ears after what has been a relaxing, chilled, lovely, beautiful five weeks of summer with nothing much in the world to worry about. I mean, I was going to do a catch-up episode this week, but looking back, it's almost like nothing of note happened at all. Nazis and nuclear war and flooding and terror! Uh, oh yeah, uh, oh that must have slipped my mind. And it was a bit cloudy at times as well. Worst summer ever. Yes, it seems we are now in an era of choice unlike any we've had before. Which way would you like to die most? Nuclear war, global warming or an uprising of Nazis that may well lead to both of those things at once? If that isn't democracy, I don't know what is. Thanks to very angry caterpillar North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and constant warning as to why you should always wear sunscreen US President Donald Trump, the possibility of nuclear war is back on the table like the world's hottest curry. Most people know it's on the menu, but very few idiots would ever order it unless they're so blinkered by their own self-importance they'd happily ignore the devastating fallout it would have on both ends for ages after. North Korea has announced that they've successfully tested an H-bomb, which sadly doesn't inflict an area with terrible songs by steps. And yes, I've said sadly, because its actual consequences are actually far, far worse than even that. I mean, who'd have thought that Trump responding to North Korea's annual bravado test with threats such as we will respond with fire and fury like the world has never seen wouldn't make things better? Apparently, that comment that he made was improvised by the US president, and I can't help but feel that if somebody had shouted in the style of film noir beforehand, it may have made it a lot more palatable. Since then, North Korea has fired a missile into the sea, the other side of Japan, a country that really has had enough of this sort of shit already, and then tested an H-bomb so large that it caused a seismologist to tweet, oh fuck, which is the most accurate summary of 2017 yet. South Korea responded by also firing a missile into the sea to prove it too has the range to hit North Korea. I can't help but wonder if any of these countries have seen Godzilla, because with all these attacks on the oceans around Japan, it might be more likely that a big pissed off nuclear lizard will end this before any bonkers authoritarian dictator does. 
The US have now warned that there will be a massive military response to North Korea's actions, with a stock photo of old white American man General Mattis saying that they aren't looking at total annihilation of North Korea, but they have many options to do so. And if that threat makes absolutely no difference, it's highly likely the US will just point out that their dad is bigger than North Korea's dad and he drives a JCB. What's super baffling is emo minion Kim Jong-un's motives, as increasing a nuclear threat can only end in either his country being deprived of imports it needs, or being totally destroyed at a US-South Korea takeover. So is this the world's most dangerous suicide note, or just an elaborate cry for help? Or is it one of those situations where Kim Jong meant to back down quite a while ago, but got drunk and is now in far too deep? In which case, maybe all of this could be resolved with a Facebook confession apology and an are you okay hun from Trump as a comment. Who knows how this will end, though, but I do know that making jokes and trying to find the positive of nuclear war is very, very hard for a comedian like me. I mean, the only plus side I can think of so far is that if we end up with two-headed dogs, then you can at least pat them twice, and that'll be fun. Hey, more stuff will glow in the dark as well, which would be quite good at night, and if you're living in a bunker, you can eat a lot of baked beans without having to make an excuse, though if it's airtight, that would also be very bad. And that is pretty much it, so fingers crossed this situation cools down rather than heats up very soon. Of course, it is possible that the reason most of North Korea's missile strikes have been in the sea so far is because that may soon be the best way to attack the US, now that large portions of it are underwater. Hurricane Harvey, with its name like a 70s boxer, left parts of Texas severely flooded, with 47 dead and up to 43,000 in shelters. Trump has only made one visit to a not very affected area, while both he and Melania were in completely inappropriate footwear for flooding. To be fair, Trump probably assumes everything is as shallow as he is, and therefore that makes sense. The damage looks set to cost about $180 billion, and it has resulted in the petrochemical industry leaking thousands of tonnes more pollutants, causing water contamination and toxic fumes as well. But hey, you can still pat two-headed dogs twice, right? Despite there also being epic-scale floods in India, Nepal and Bangladesh, which no one is talking about due to the lack of white people affected, human-made climate change is still barely being blamed as a cause. I'm pretty sure if a polar bear floated amongst the floods in Houston on an iceberg with a sign reading Fuck Trump, he'd be condemned and called morally indistinguishable from those burning fossil fuels like the Flintstones at a barbecue. That is now, of course, the argument against that anti-fascist movement in the US, after white supremacists marched against the removal of a statue of General Robert E. Lee, a veritable symbol of racism and slavery profiteering. Personally, I think statues commemorating oppressive arseholes who were defeated should be taken down. Otherwise, I expect the alt-right to start campaigning for that big one of Saddam Hussein that got taken down in 2003 to go back up immediately. Though, to be fair, if these awful statues are left up, they're often shot on by birds, and bird poop is black and white, so it's almost like a fuck you to racists from nature. Anyway, after a white supremacist drove a car into anti-fascist protesters, killing one and injuring 30 in an act of domestic terrorism, President Donald Trump decided to calm the situation by condemning the hatred, bigotry and violence on both sides. Yeah, both sides. Because those seeking a totalitarian state and oppression of many just because of the colour of their skin are exactly like those who seek equality and freedom. I mean... Really, Donald? No one watches Star Wars and thinks at the end, well, I think those seeking peace across the galaxy are just as much to blame as the guys in helmets who blew up an entire planet with a laser. The argument has now spread with many condemning the anti-fascist movement, which is pretty much anyone who's not a fascist, and even a lot of politicos blaming them for the rise in fascism in the first place. Yeah, that's definitely how it works. The anti-fascists kicked around with nothing to do till fascists very kindly stepped in to give them some purpose. Sure, an anti-pasta is to blame for the existence of pasta, is it? Fucking idiots. 
I find the rise in fascism in the Western world very, very scary indeed. I mean, how could anyone watch Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, see those dudes at the end get their faces melted and think, yeah, they seem like good role models? Trump's senior white supremacist counsellor Steve Bannon resigned mid-August, you know, in order to spend more time as a warning on a cigarette packet. As did massive racist and deputy assistant Trump Sebastian Gorka, a man whose evil parallel universe version of himself would look almost exactly the same, but with kinder eyes. But both are now continuing Trump's pro-racist diatribe outside of the restrictions of the administration, so it seems rather than this being a positive change for the Trump government, it was more an admittance that the White House just wasn't quite white enough for them. Meanwhile, back at home, UK politics is just getting back into gear after a summer break, though that gear is almost certainly reverse. Prime Minister Theresa May has been visiting Japan, probably as part of the manufacturer's recall for her batch of human androids. While there, she stated that she is planning to be the Prime Minister of the UK for the long term, though hopefully she just means according to school timetables and she'll be out by Christmas, with her final week spent just watching videos. Meanwhile, the EU are concerned about the Brexit talks, saying time is passing without progress, almost as though they've never met the Conservative government before, as that was basically their manifesto slogan. There is still no agreement on how much the UK will pay the EU for the so-called Brexit bill, with disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox saying that the UK must not allow itself to be blackmailed. Yeah, that's exactly how blackmail works, Liam. You decide to do something, it doesn't go as planned, you complain it's blackmail. I don't actually know if it's possible to blackmail someone as low as Liam Fox, as he's usually so proud of all his misdemeanours that he charges the taxpayers for the privilege of him doing them. I hope that the EU says the Brexit bill is less than planned, but then charges us in euros. The pound is currently so shit that it'll end up costing the government more and teaching them a lesson at the same time. And lastly, the Conservatives are trying a bit of a rebrand with Tory Glastonbury being planned. Uh, I assume instead of a pyramid stage, they'll have a Ponzi scheme one. They have also created their own version of Labour's grassroots movement Momentum, which the Conservatives surprisingly haven't called U-turn or regression, but instead activate after the words needed to start up Theresa May after she's fully charged at the wall socket. Oh, and Big Ben has had its bong silenced for four years for repair works, causing Labour MP Stephen Pound to weep during its last bong. While you could question what sort of moron sheds a tear at a clock, I suppose I do understand, as without Big Ben's bongs, how will we know for sure that the UK is progressing forwards in time when there's no other obvious signs? And that is almost all of it. Uh, I'm sorry to leave you all in the wilderness while all of that was going on with only the actual news and all of the internet to keep you informed. But hey, never fear, because this podcast is back. Is this... Season two or is it season three? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. I want seasons for this podcast as to keep you entertained. I'll probably have to kill off a major character. And considering it's only me that does this, it could get quite tricksy. There is a lot to get through on this week's show, though, because it seems no one got Will Smith's memo that summertime is to sit back and unwind. Jeez. Also, there are some things that I can't fit into this week's show, but I plan to get onto in upcoming weeks, depending on how easy it is to broadcast from an underground nuclear bunker, obviously. So if you're thinking, where's all the stuff on Venezuela, the China-India border, conflict, Australia's hilarious politician citizenship issues and much more, then hold your horses. Mainly because, you know, even horses need a hug sometimes as well. But yeah, uh, there will be stuff on all those things in upcoming shows. Um, And also, there are things like North Korea, which I'm not mentioning much on this week's show, because uh, if you go back to episode 56, I explained it a lot then. And really, uh, it's kind of just the same now, but worse. And before I tell you what's in this week's show, um, some very, very quick admin. Uh, Firstly, thank you very much for tuning in again to the show after the summer break. And thank you to all of those of you who caught up on episodes that you'd missed um, over the summer. Um, Thank you to Mark, who used a minute of his summertime to review the show on iTunes. It is hugely appreciated. And this podcast now needs just one
one more audience review to get us to 50 reviews and only two more star reviews to get it to 70. So come on, help me reach numbers that ultimately mean absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of the universe. Um, you can also review the show on Stitcher, Podbean or any of your podcast listening platforms and probably train platforms and platform shoes as well. Um, but please do that. It really does help people find out about the show. Um, also, thank you to Hannah, Mike and Marie, Autumn Penkridge, MTOX, Colin and Anonymous who donated to the Kofi page at www.ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro uh, and also to Tammy, Aaron and Claire who donated to the Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. Um, it is genuinely hugely helpful towards me making this show and as well as allowing me to avoid gigs in order to do this, um, I've also recently used some of your donations to buy myself a ticket to one day of the Labour conference in a few weeks time and I'm hoping to interview a few people while I'm there. Um, I did have a couple of people going, can you go to the Conservative one as well? Um, I can't because I'm not a Conservative Party member, which means I couldn't get an invite and I'm not official press, so I couldn't do it there either. Um, if any of you want to uh, give me a fake peerage, I'll definitely try my best to sneak in. Um, but look, anyway, if you'd like me to do more of that sort of thing for the show, please, please, please do donate. It all helps. Also, a little bit of an incentive to join the Patreon, um, if you were thinking about it anyway. Uh, if you didn't see my Ed Fringe show, I'm going to be popping a recording of it up there for a limited time uh, from the end of this week, probably Friday 8th of September, uh, and it's going to be for subscribers only. So if you fancy joining up, now would be a very good time. And then, of course, you can unjoin once you've got the file and help reassure my view that a lot of people are really awful inside. Speaking of my Ed Fringe show, thank you to all of you who came during the month, especially those who asked me after the show, uh, when is the podcast coming back? It was very nice to know how many PPB listeners I had in the audience. Um, the month was fun as well, um, although also quite tough as per every year. I mean, it's basically, it's a month of shows. You perform every day. It is impossible at some point in that month to not hate the words you're saying. Um, but it was lovely. Um, and as well as doing my show every day, I did a few politics-based things for this show. Um, I went to see John McDonald talk which was very interesting um, actually not as much politics as you think um, there were some good stories uh, about his first job working for the Miners Trade Union where his only uh, job was that he had to make sure a head unionist uh, got home alright after a trade union dinner um, and there was loads of free booze there and John McDonald turned up with the guy and next thing he knew he woke up in St James's Park at 1am with a terrible hangover and no idea what had happened and the trade union called him up the next day and said what happened to the, the head trade unionist you meant to be looking after you had one job and John McDonald said oh I don't know I lost him I don't know what went on and they said we know apparently he turned up to a bookshop till 3am in the morning and lectured them about Shakespeare brilliant um so there was that uh, I also heard a talk in Edinburgh by this week's guest and I managed to sort out an interview with her so more on that in a second um, but I am going to be doing my Edinburgh Fringe show a few more times if you do want to see it uh, it's going to be in Dublin at the end of this month at uh, On Show at uh, on Friday the 22nd um, and then it's going to be in Aberdeen next month on October the 14th at the Aberdeen Comedy Festival and hopefully there will be more to come and I'm going to aim to get it recorded too like my previous shows that you can find on nextupcomedy.com so I'll keep you posted on all of those billions of things um this week though if you are one of the nine people who listen to this show in denmark or one of the 59 people who listen to it in sweden i am way more popular in sweden why i have no idea um i am gigging in gothenburg in sweden on wednesday the 6th at casino cosmopol and the dubliner in copenhagen on the 7th um and back in blighty i think there are a handful of tickets left for the gig i'm hosting with frankie boyle on saturday in cardiff at st david's hall uh, so do hurry up and grab those as well 
Right, last thing. Uh, if you check the Facebook group or Twitter just before the summer, you might have noticed excellent listener Cat Day made some linear notes for episode 70 with all the links uh, from the episode on them. She's offered to do a few more episodes if you have any favourites you could recommend. Um, also, if any of the rest of you have time and fancy logging or making some linear notes for this podcast, it would be hugely appreciated. Um, I'm planning to make a separate Parpolbo website at some point and try to have a log on there of all the issues discussed so you can look through for specific ones. Um, but that is going to take ages so give me a shout if you have a lot of spare time on your hands and really really nothing else better to do right um this week's show this week's show i am speaking to brilliant economist Anne petty for about as her new book is called the production of money uh, and i'm very excited for you to hear that it's a great chat um plus of course more brexit and some other stuff but before all of that there is as always this 122 charities have complained that they are being gagged by the government's lobbying act. First question you might have is, how do we know that if they've been gagged? Good point. Maybe it is a trap. No, it's not a trap. It's the 2014 Lobbying Act that was supposedly designed to prevent corporations having too much influence prior to an election. But the problem is the rules apply to any organisation or individual who have to register with the Electoral Commission if they spend more than £5,000 on a campaign in the 12-month lead-up to an election. That, of course, includes charities, and that means they're restricted on having content that may unduly affect an election. In the case of charities, that means most of them can't now go, we wouldn't even need to be here if the Tories hadn't fucked things up. And that leaves most of them without anything to campaign about at all. Greenpeace were charged earlier this year with a £30,000 fine by the Electoral Commission for not registering with them pre-2015 the election. This is because they wanted to campaign on air pollution, climate change and wildlife protection, all areas that you can't campaign about without pointing out that the Conservatives haven't done anything about the first two and actively want to chase down and kill the latter for a bit of fun on a weekend. Christian Aid, a charity primarily there for whenever Hollywood star Mr Bale gets in a tizzy, said they had to scale back a campaign to help refugees because they didn't want to be seen as having political bias, despite that being a very political issue. Other charities who have complained and signed an open letter to make changes to this law include Save the Children, the RSPB and Girl Guiding. Yes, even the Girl Guides are pissed. And if up until now you were thinking, well, the Lobbying Act isn't that serious an issue, God, if even the girl guides feel they've been gagged and they can't work out how to undo it, then there's definitely something very wrong with it. Two prominent Labour women have resigned from their posts in recent weeks, and while this sort of thing is now so common in Labour, you kind of wonder if they should just install a revolving door at Party HQ, Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale stepping down and Sarah Champion leaving her post as Shadow Minister for Women and Equalities both have their own various factors to consider. Looking at Scottish Labour first, Dugdale's resignation isn't much to dwell on by itself. I mean, she wasn't so much handed a poison chalice by former leader and village idiot Jim Murphy as a cursed relic that promised the beholder a properly shit time for several years. But Dugdale's resignation seems largely personal rather than political and far more to do with her relationship with an SMP MSP, which is a very hard thing to say quite quickly. You try it, SMP MSP, SMP MSP, but not easy. Um, but it has quite a lot to do with her relationship with an SMP MSP as well as the death of her friend rather than anything else. I mean, fair enough, why would you actually jeopardise properly important things in your life because you're too busy correcting Sky News reporter Sophie Ridge when she refers to you as the Scottish Labour leader? 
Yes, really, that happened. Look it up. What this means, though, is that the next leader of Scottish Labour could give the party a far more left-wing pro-Corbyn outlook, with former Glasgow MP Anis Sawa, former GMB union officer Richard Leonard and campaigner Monica Lennon all being touted as maybes for the job. There is no obvious candidate, though, at the moment, but it could really change how Labour do in Scotland if they aren't just viewed by the pro-Indy voters as being in line with the Tories, as they were in the independence campaign in 2014. Also, a slightly more left-wing Labour could mean that they've got a proper challenge to the SNP. But at the same time, it could turn far more moderate pro-union voters towards Scottish Conservatives instead. So, I mean, who actually wants to take all that on? It would be far easier leading the Scottish Labour Party. And hey, I hear there's an opening. (laughs) Ha, yeah, I went there. No, I'm not sorry. As for Sarah Champion, despite her name making her sound like the best of all Sarahs, it turns out she's really, really not. Sarah resigned from her post as Shadow Minister for Women and Equalities after writing a piece for The Sun. No, that's not the reason why, but yeah, really just writing a piece for The Sun should be enough. The bigger problem was the piece itself, which was written after 17 men and one woman were found guilty of committing over 100 sex offences against vulnerable girls in Newcastle. In her article, Champion stated that Britain has a problem with British Pakistani men raping and exploiting girls. Yes, the Shadow Equalities Minister made a rather generalised racist statement. Though to be fair, Champion does have form at this, as when she was Shadow Minister for Preventing Abuse, she attacked her husband in a domestic dispute. Yeah, really. But back to the recent article, Champion made that pretty inflammatory statement and Sarah said that the paper had altered her article but then The Sun, rarely the challenger of lies, produced an email from one of her aides saying that actually she was very pleased with it. Since resigning, Sarah Champion has accused the floppy left of being afraid to speak out against grooming gangs in case of accusations of racism. And a tiny bit of that is right in that she's right to say that stopping grooming gangs should be of utmost importance much more than caring about how you're viewed, but evidence proves her comments to be really problematic. For a start, there are two categories of group-based abuse. Type 1 involves targeting a victim based on their vulnerability. Type 2 involves targeting specifically children because they're children, not necessarily because they're vulnerable. The Child Exploitation and Online Protection Centre carried out research in 2013 on 57 cases of Type 1 abuse in 2012 using police-provided ethnicity data. They also carried out research on six cases of Type 2 in the same year. Half of the Type 1 cases were carried out by people of Asian ethnicity, 21% by white groups and 17% by multiple ethnicity groups. And they concluded from that that 75% of all Type 1 group abusers were Asian. And they also stated that 100% of all Type 2 abuse was by white men. Now, while the stats for the Type 1 abuse seem to show that it is overwhelmingly Asian groups that target children and young women because they're vulnerable, they also say that Type 2 abuse is far, far more common in the UK than Type 1 abuse. In 2012, police identified 2,120 cases of lone Type 2 abuse in comparison to 65 cases of Type 1. And considering it was from five years ago, and the CEOP don't have ethnicity data for all the lone abusers or group abusers identified by police from that year, no one can really draw any conclusions other than there are some really, really awful people out there from all ethnicities, and we should really try and stop them all regardless. And really, it would have been far easier for Sarah Champion to write an article about tackling all levels of horrific abuse rather than getting all the sun about it. But hey, you know, I give it a couple of years now that she's resigned before she's suddenly Shadow Minister for Transport and runs over a cyclist within four days. I honestly have very little idea about where money comes from. Um, As a kid, I was pretty certain that the Royal Mint was just a giant fox's glacier, and years later I'm still not 100% convinced I'm wrong. Only the Queen is allowed to lick it, and then she poops out pound coins with her face on, yeah? That's how it works, right?
Okay, maybe not, but I'm still largely confused about how the Bank of England can just make money appear sometimes out of nowhere with quantitative easing, yet I'm not allowed to ask my bank to just remove the minus sign and replace it with a plus until I can afford my rent. Surely, if that money's not physically there anymore, we can all just have a go. Or does my local bank actually have a very, very deep vault full of goblins guarding gold like Gringotts? And that's where my deposits must go when I put them in that hugely unreliable metal post box that looks like a dead Star Wars droid. Hmm, it's all very confusing. Even if, however, you're far more intelligent than me, I'm pretty sure that it confuses a lot of people why we're often told there's not enough money for things we need, such as welfare or education, but you just whistle the tune to Edwin Starr's war in the direction of the government, or announce that some creationist pro-lifers are at the door, and bam, you've got a veritable Scrooge McDuck swimming pool in front of you. It's been 10 years since the global financial crash devastated the world and brought with it years and years of austerity, but there have been very few questions asked about why the only offered way forward seemed to take everyone backwards. Why does the monetary system work like this, and as, if not more importantly, how? Is there a way the monetary system could actually work for the people and for the ecosystem? And most importantly, is it still cool to boo bankers? So this week I interviewed economist Anne Pettifor. Anne is the director of Prime, aka Policy Research in Macroeconomics. Uh, she's part of the Labour Party's Economic Advisory Board, and she's one of the only people to correctly predict the global financial crash in 2007. She led the Jubilee 2000 campaign, which resulted in massive debt cancellation for a number of countries. And above all else, she is brilliant at explaining economics in a clear and easy way for people like me to understand. I went to hear her talk at the Edinburgh Book Festival this year, and I immediately bought her new book, The Production of Money, as a result. I was very excited that she agreed to let me interview her for the podcast, and I'm sure you'll find, as I did, that I could put nearly everything she says onto t-shirts because they are the sort of sensible sound bites I wish everyone could hear. Anyway... I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking to her. Here is Anne. So, hi, Anne. Um, first question, I know you've been asked this a lot lately. Um, we are 10 years since the global financial crash, which you predicted uh, way before quite a lot of other people. Um, we've got uh, a lot of public debt. Trump's talking about rolling back bank reforms. Have we made any improvements since the last crash? Hi, Tiernan. No, the point is that... What has happened since the crisis, and it's really quite extraordinary, and I think it, it's a result of, of us, the public, not really understanding what happened. You know, we were, we were all in shock and awe at the crisis, and all of us, of course, were stunned because we were affected in some way or another. But the, the result was that nothing changed. Um, and I have to say that the bankers can't quite believe their luck. So what has happened is that banks have been told they have to put in more capital to they need to have more buffers if you like against another crisis or another series of losses they need to have great a greater stake in their business more equity um you know the banks were if you think about an ordinary person applying for a mortgage you normally ask to put down 25 percent before you can have another three hundred thousand, say um uh, but the banks were borrowing without that kind of stake in their in their risk taking, and now the central banks have said, "Come on, you've got to clean up, and you've got to have more of a stake in in your risks and more of uh, equity in 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 some of that uh, speculation that you're undertaking, both on the lending side and on the borrowing side." Um, so that's happened, but that's in a sense, minor. The actual international financial architecture, because the fact is it is an architecture, there's there's an a, a international system that has certain 
features, structures, uh, which have been put in place in a sort of uh, higgledy-piggledy way since 1971. But that international financial architecture is pretty much the same as it was before. It means that banks can move money across borders without any fear of restraint. No great pressure has been put on them uh, to be taxed uh, in, in, to, in, in domains where they're, where they're trying to avoid taxes. Um, the actual chief executives of banks have not been found guilty of irresponsible behaviour. They've all been left off the hook. Um, they're still encouraged to lend money. Um, in fact, we, the Bank of England is subsidising the banks in order to, to nudge them, push them actually, into lending money, for example, on London property. So this buy, help to buy scheme is a scheme that's a form of subsidy to A, the construction sector, but also to, to banks to engage in what is actually speculative activity. If you think about buying a property in London, people who are buying properties in London are betting, they're gambling, that property prices will rise forever. And we know that's not going to happen. We know that there's going to be a turnaround at some point. But banks are being encouraged to lend into to London property, and, um, and, and the government is giving them a massive subsidy to that, thanks to George Osborne. Uh, and the real awful thing about the way things are at the moment, about the way things have not changed, is that Something like 70, 75% of all British bank lending is to property, is in property speculation, if you like, and only a small part, less than the 25%, um, far less, is loans to firms and businesses engaging in productive activity that generates employment and with employment generates income. So, um, no, the, the situation is probably not just business as usual, but business is better than usual. Because the other thing about the post-financial crisis setup is that whereas before the crisis, the banks didn't have governments backing them up, now everyone knows they're too big to fail and they're too big to jail. They've therefore, and they have bank government guarantees, that's taxpayer-backed guarantees for deposits in their banks. That gives them a fair amount of certainty. They haven't reintroduced the Glass-Steagall system where they've separated out their retail banking from their speculative banking, their own banking, their own gambling and speculation. They're still merged, and the government is guaranteeing the retail half of that. And then the Bank of England is giving them what one could define as easy money at very low rates of interest. It's QE, very large sums of QE, liquidity, if you like, and very low rates of interest. So the banks are borrowing at 0.15 or 0.25%, and they're lending on to you and me, for example, for a mortgage at 4%. But if you were to take out an overdraft or if you were to overspend on your credit card, it's 38% I saw today. So, you know, so that they're back to making big money, big potatoes from virtually effortless activity and knowing all the time that they've got taxpayer backing. The thing that bugs me, Tiernan, is that the old Taxpayers Alliance always comes out and makes a fuss when taxes go up and so on. But they're not saying a word about taxpayers guaranteeing 
the security and, and the profits and the viability of the banking system. But that's what we are doing. Well, cause I, I was also going to ask, in the, uh, I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, that house prices cannot rise forever. And if that's where most of the investments are, I assume at some point the, things could go wrong again. We could have another crash. But would would they would the banks be able to be bailed out in the same way when we're currently told that we're in a country that doesn't have enough money at the moment? Well, I'm you know, I'm not entirely sure. I am told by all the authorities that the banks have made enough provision for another turn down, downturn in, in house prices and another crisis for there not to be another systemic failure. In other words, they're not going to get to be so broken that they'll break down the whole global financial system. Now, I don't know whether to believe that or not, but I have a sense it's probably true that the central banks have insisted on certain types of regulation and certain capital buffers which mean the next crisis is probably not going to come from the traditional banking sector. My fear is that there's a whole new banking sector that's emerged, and it's called shadow banking, because it takes place in the shadows, outside of the regulatory system, away from the, the oversight of the central banks. And in that part of the financial forest, if you like. There's an awful lot of gambling and speculation going on, and we don't know what's being done. Um, so, <clears throat> so I have a feeling that, that, that we won't have <clears throat> a repeat of the same crisis we had in 2007. It'll come from another part. And that's the problem. You know, it's, it's all very well being a clever dick and predicting that the whole thing is going to fall down. And I I have to say, I can't see why it won't fall down again. All the signs are there that it will. The difficult part is predicting the timing and predicting what event will trigger it. Will it be Hurricane Harvey that triggers this and something awful happening to oil refineries, to the oil price and causing a recession in the United States? Could it be that? Um, could it be some big asset management fund like BlackRock or one of those very big funds that are currently investing all our pensions and insurance contracts into God knows where, one of them could go bust or could could have a crisis. So it's difficult to know. And if one did know that, one could bet on it and make a lot of money. And I'm afraid I'm not one of those, sadly. <laughs> That's a shame. It'd be, it'd be nice to know there'd be a way to win out of it somehow. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of quite quite terrifying that you say that we, we're not quite sure what it could be or what could be caused next. And I, I'm, is there anything in place that could prevent another crash happening? I mean, um, one of the things I found fascinating in your uh, reading your book and when I heard you talk a couple of weeks ago in, in Edinburgh was that you're very pro-banking, which I think just as a someone like me whose uh, knowledge of politics and economy is limited, uh, we've been taught to just hate the idea of banking since the crash. Yeah. Um, but you were very uh, uh, of the mind that, that good banking is very, very important, in fact, vital. Um, so what do we need to do to perhaps have good banking rather than this rather scary sounding shadow banking? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I argue and annoy a lot of people by saying this, that actually a, a sound monetary system is what I call it, is what it is. A sound monetary system is a, was a great civilizational advance when we set up the Bank of England in 1694. There's a strong correlation between the setting up of the Bank of England in 1694 and the Industrial Revolution. 
small-time entrepreneurs taking big risks, inventing steam engines and that kind of stuff, were able to get finance because we had a monetary system, we had a banking system. Prior to that, if they wanted to invent a steam engine, they'd have to go to the lord of the manor up on the hill, where who'd been, you know, roared, uh, you know, warring and marauding, and had acquired a massive surplus by fair means or foul, and he'd have to go on his bended knees and say to the, the lord of the manor, please, I beg you, give me some money because I've had a bright idea, I want to invent a steam engine. And the lord of the manor would have said, yes, I, I'll give you some money, um, but I'll charge you 15%. And nobody makes uh, a, a profit on a risk, on a new risk of 15%. So that would have been an impossible loan. And they would have said, oh, well, don't worry, I, I, I'll just drop my idea for a steam engine. Because, you know, in those days, interest rates were usurious, and they still are sometimes, and I want to come back to that at some point. They were incredibly high. And you had to get it from, you know, the lords of the manor. You, now, when we invented a banking system, that in a sense democratized access to finance. It meant you could go along to the bank manager and say, look, I've got a bright idea. I can show you that it will generate income when I get it going, but it's going to take time and I really need your help. And the bank manager offered rates then that were much, interest rates that were much lower than the pre-Bank uh, of England foundation stage, basically. And so that was what enabled risky entrepreneurs to get finance to do things they wanted to do. So I believe that, and I know that because I've traveled in Africa a lot, that in countries which don't have a sound monetary system, which don't have the institutions which uphold contracts, which uh, criminal justice law, judicial law, they don't have decent accounting systems. They don't have an independent central bank that manages the, the currency properly. All these things are missing. And as a result, they have no money. So I think for those of us privileged enough to live within a sound monetary system, we ought to accept that we are privileged. Having said that, a monetary system is a kind of magic. You know, it is, it is the creation of money out of thin air to finance activities which will eventually generate income with which to repay the money created out of thin air, the credit or the debt. Um, and as such, it's not like growing tomatoes or growing Nike shoes or growing uh, some other product or an Apple phone, which in involves engagement with the land, if you like, and in engagement with the labor. You know, the creation of money is just by a, a process of entering numbers into uh, it's a process of making an assessment of risk on the one hand, and when you've made your risk assessment, entering numbers into a computer and transferring the sum to the bank account of the person who's applied for the loan. It's an almost effortless activity, and so it should always cost very little. But above all, it should be managed. And I, I'd like to compare an unmanaged banking system to the story of the uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. I don't know if you remember <laughs> Dante. I only remember it from the Disney movie, which I yeah, want. Yeah, me too, saw. me too. And, and it's that wonderful image where the sorcerer, who understands how to manage the magic, goes out to lunch, leaves the apprentice behind, and he decides to magic the, 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 you know, the water pails, the pails of water and the brushes and so on to do all the work that he's supposed to do, cleaning the floor. And hopefully he'll sit back and all be okay. And suddenly there's dozens of pails of water and dozens of brooms and there's utter mayhem. 
Um, and that is what happens if you allow the banking system to be governed by something called, you know, something magical called the invisible hand. Now, you know, money is not like a commodity. Money is not like oil or silver or gold or tomatoes. It's, it's this kind, it's based on trust. It is nothing more. Money is nothing more than a promise to pay. I promise to pay you. Credit derives from the word credo, I believe. I believe that you will pay, right? And so that the management of trust in our society has to be managed because, we, you know, there are people who are not trustworthy. It's as simple as that. Now, what, what, what the neoliberals have done, if you like, the neoclassicals have done, they've said, oh, money is like gold or silver. It's a scarce commodity. And, and like all commodities, the price of it, i.e. the rate of interest, can be determined by supply and demand, right? Well, money hasn't been gold or silver for a very, very long time. Money uh, has, since before 1694, 1694 and the founding of the Bank of England, simply being a promise to pay it. And if you don't believe me, think of your credit card. When you go into a store to buy a washing machine, there is no money in your credit card account. You haven't stashed your credit card account full of gold and silver. No, there's nothing as far as you know in your credit card account. What there is is a card which says, this is Anne Pettifor, and she can be trusted to pay up to £1,000 or £10,000 or a million pounds, depending on whether she's just an ordinary soul or whether she's a Saudi princess. Now, um, that card is shown to the shopkeeper. The shopkeeper stamps it, registers it in his books um, and registers the sum of money that is promised to pay. And I take the card back and I put it in my pocket. So... That, this card is a thing which says this woman can be trusted. It's nothing more than that, and it says this woman will pay. Now, it's underpinned by our criminal justice institution. If I don't honour that promise to pay, I get stung, A, for very high rate of interest, and B, I can go to jail in the end if I don't pay my credit card, right? So, and, you know, the bank has to have a good uh, uh, accounting system to check my balances and check in incomings and outgoings and so on. And th there's other institutions we need to make sure that that credit card is effective. Right? But, but it just shows you that there's no commodity there that's being exchanged. We're not exchanging gold for a washing machine, and the man isn't stashing gold in his machine. All that he has. And, and I love to tell the story, Tiernan, if I can ramble on here. I like to tell the story of Ben Bernanke in 2009. In March 2009, he gave an interview, the first time ever that a governor of the Federal Reserve of the United States has given an interview to a television program. And it was the 60 Minutes, the prestigious 60 Minutes show on CNBC, I think it is. And on, on the day before, he'd given AIG, which is an insurance company, and that, uh, that had an account with the Fed. Now, insurance companies should not normally have accounts with the Fed, but this insurance company had created such mayhem that the Fed gave it an account in order to bail it out. But the day before, Ben Bernanke had given AIG, a reckless and dangerous and irresponsible insurance company, $85 billion. So um, the journalist says to him, now, Mr. Bernanke, tell me, where did you get that money from? 
did you raise that money from taxpayers? And he says, no, 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 no. He says, and you can go and find this on the web if you look for it. He says, we have at the Federal Reserve something that every commercial bank has got. It's called a computer. And we entered the numbers 85 billion into the computer, 11 digits, and we transferred that, transferred that amount to AIG. Now, of course, they had asked AIG to sign a contract. I promised to pay back this 85 billion. They had set a rate of interest. We're going to charge you a fee for this. And they had provided collateral. They had some some collateral, some assets that were worth something, and they handed these over to the Federal Reserve as guarantee that they were they were they meant what they were going to they meant what they said. So it wasn't just a simple process of passing numbers across, but that is how every loan is constructed. Now, given that that's how the monetary system works, it absolutely has to be managed. It cannot be left to the sorcerer's apprentice. Do you think that, uh, I mean, that story is amazing. It does make me feel like I'm using my computer wrongly. Um, but I am, um, I, I, do you think a big problem is, is that a lot of people don't look at money like that? I think we do look at it uh, yeah. as a, com- a commodity rather than sort of an enabling system uh, yeah. to, to allow us yeah. to, to gain things and, and, and generate more, more yeah. money. But is there a general misunderstanding in society of how this all works? Yeah, you know, because our credit cards and our, pound notes and our coins are representatives of our promises to pay. I think you'll know that on the the note it says, this bearer promises to pay. Um, And those are just things that, like our credit cards, symbolize our our promise to pay. Um, And just symbolize the promise, actually. They're, They're actually payments as well, but they symbolize that. They are not the thing. They're not the thing, you know. The thing is the promise to pay. So um, what has happened is we've begun to make a fetish out of the symbol. You know, we we pretend that the credit card is like gold or silver. We even make platinum and gold and silver credit cards, really. And, of course, they're not that. Because we can't get away from this idea that money isn't gold or silver, and and, it, and to be honest, David Graeber has written a wonderful book called The First Five, Death the First Five Thousand Years, and he shows that in ancient societies there were credit systems. You know, you'd live in a village, and in the village there'd be a woman who could cut hair and a bloke who could thatch roofs. I may be a little <laughs> bit gender biased at the moment, and and she'd say, "I'll cut your hair on condition you." thatch my roof and she'd cut his hair and then the question would become would he thatch her roof and do it in time and in each village there would have been a chief or a priest or some high official that everybody trusted who monitored these promises and made sure that they they were upheld and that the roof got thatched in the end um, and as David Graeber shows it's only when of strangers came to the village and it wasn't possible to manage them and uphold their promises that villagers would engage in barter I'll only have your chicken uh, I'll only give give you this in exchange for a chicken or whatever do you know what I mean so so barter was never a basis for money and credit has existed for a very very long time and it's been upheld by churches and and, and imams and by uh, uh, 
Jewish schools and those kinds of institutions for the, the whole of time. Um, unfortunately, we do make fetishes out of the symbols of this because if you can make a lot of promises and you can deliver on those promises, then you're then you're rich basically, and so then you know this this becomes fetishized this this thing called money, and and I we must really get back to what it is really. It's the thing that enables us to do what we can do, and now the other thing is to understand Tim is that the institutions that are monetary systems can be captured, and they can be captured and exploited and used for the one percent. While the rest of us, the 99%, have real difficulty getting access to money and access to finance. And that's what's happened. And we, throughout history, there have been struggles between, if you like, democracy on the one hand, democratic institutions on the one hand, and I call them financial institutions, you know, the 1%, the gold, the bankers, the people, the people who we 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 hoped we could hold in trust. Mm. You know, we substituted the banks for the chief of the village. And the bank was supposed to be the person or the institution that enabled me to lend to you and do for you what you could do for me, you know, we could do for each other. And the bank was meant to be the institution that enabled all that to happen. And maybe they took a small fee for their their efforts in connecting me with, with a relative stranger and making sure that my payment arrived in the bank and so on. I'm very happy to pay a fee for that. However, what they've done is they've taken that role and they've usurped it and usurped that power to create new money for themselves and to use that money for speculation. And we've allowed it to happen because we don't understand the, the monetary system and we don't understand that, that we have power, we can do something about it. That is, our we invented those institutions. And furthermore, none of these private financial institutions can function without taxpayer backing, right. without a taxpayer-backed central bank, without a currency that's valued on the back of taxpayers' uh, payments. You know, the fact that in Britain we collect taxes from 31 million people and we do that regularly and in a sound way and, and you know, with, with only a minute amount of fraud and so on and so forth, means that our currency is valuable. Um, if you go to Malawi, where they don't really have a sound tax collection system, where they don't uh, have, you know, the civil servants and the, the criminal justice system to ensure that people pay their taxes, their, their currency has no value. They have a very low value currency. Now, the bankers are fooling around with our currency, with this, with this thing called sterling, the pound. And they're using it and gambling with it and doing all kinds. But but if we withdrew our support from for that, they would be in very deep trouble, you know. And and how do we do that? That's a very much more difficult concept. But I just want us to start thinking about how all of the private activity in financial in the financial sector is backed by public institutions. The central bank, the Bank of England, is a nationalised bank, right? Mm. We need to always remember that. Um, you know, the, the the pavements that these bankers use in London have all been cleaned up by taxpayers, you know. The fact that London is, is a safe place to do business is thanks to taxpayers, uh, you know, paying for a, a, a police and, and a criminal justice system which upholds laws. These are all things 
that benefit the financial system and that are publicly financed, if we chose to withhold those services and those resources from private financial institutions, they'd be in deep trouble. But we don't because we don't know we have the power to do that. The other thing I wanted to say was that many of them gamble in the international, in the shadow banking sector, but they ne all need to have collateral. And there just aren't enough London properties to serve as enough collateral for the degree of speculation that goes on there. So they use sovereign debt, for example. Now, sovereign debt is our public debt, and it's the debt that the British government owes to pension funds, to insurance companies, but also to the capital markets, and that we always faithfully repay because we are known to be, if you like, AAA rated as a, as a country. Now, that they take that debt, believe it or not, and they use it as collateral. Whereas, you know, you will use the, the bricks and mortar of your house as collateral. They use, they buy up sovereign debt. If they, when you're holding a, a, a British government bond in your hand, you're able to say, look, I'm so well off, I've got these bonds, I can now borrow another £300,000, right? Mm. So they need that kind of, and, and that's the most valued and the most popular collateral of all for the financial institution. They also use other collateral. They buy works of art like, you know, a wonderful Van Gogh at $85 million, stash it away in a vault somewhere in Dubai, and against the value of that work of art, which is now invisible to everybody, they're able to borrow another 300 million quid on the international capital markets. Do you know what I mean? Because sure. they have, they can, yeah. they can buy, they can borrow against, maybe not, but they can borrow against that collateral. So they, they need collateral and a lot of the real collateral that they need is are public assets um, funded by taxpayers. And we've got to understand our role in all of this in order to be able to say to the finance sector, you need the public. And if you need the public, we have set terms and conditions for you using our assets. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with Anne in just a minute, but first... Richard Morrow! 
Obviously, the big question you're all thinking is, Tiernan, right, you've been away for five weeks. What on earth is happening with Brexit? Well, fanfare, please. Pretty much nothing. That's right, the UK are blaming the EU for the slow progress of talks, while the EU are blaming the UK. Now, I'm not saying it's obvious which side is right, but I'm pretty sure that Secretary of State for Brexit and everyone's least favourite Harry Enfield character, David Davis, has the kind of superpower ability that would ensure he could even stall a snail race. Davis says that the EU are using time to put pressure on negotiations, even though it was the UK government that triggered Article 50 without having anything in place and giving everyone only two years to sort it all out in the first place. Tell you what, David, why not next accuse the EU of wasting time with a pointless power-grabbing election that they aren't competent enough to do well in? Try that one, David. See how that goes. You're welcome. The big problem Davis has is with the so-called Brexit bill. You know, the one that covers all the shared financial obligations that the UK undertook while an EU member. Yeah, while Davis has admitted that the UK has these obligations, him and the government are being more cagey than Nicholas about how much they think they should pay. And nothing makes us look like better trading partners than the rest of the world than our unwillingness to pay for stuff we've already used. Hey everyone, come trade with Britain. We'll take you for lunch and then run off after eating and leave you with all the costs. What more could you want? This bill has to be sorted before trade talks can start, but of course the government's Brexit team want trade talks to start first. It's a bit like asking the local library when they'll start stocking your self-published books on hairdos for pet gerbils while refusing to return their VHS of He-Man and She-Ra first that you've had for 16 years. Sorry, that is a really terrible analogy for young people. Um, If you're under 30 and listening, libraries were houses for books that we used to have in the past. Responding to disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox's stupid comments about the EU trying to blackmail the UK, the EU Brexit negotiator Barnier said it was his job to educate the UK about the price it would be paying for leaving the EU. Considering nobody bothered to learn anything about this before the referendum, I really don't know why he'd think that would work now. What all this really means is that nothing has been discussed on what the UK will owe the EU, what's going to happen with the Irish border, or very importantly, citizens' rights after Brexit. Instead, now the government only have a year and five months to sort all of that out, plus there'll be further delays with the German general election in a few weeks' time. It seems if David Davis was right and the EU are actually using time to put pressure on the government, it's because they have a watch and they understand how it works. Meanwhile, Theresa May got the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to agree to use Japan's trade deal with the EU as a basis for a future trade deal with the UK. Which is a great coup. I mean, essentially, we'll have the same deal as we did beforehand. And while you might think that sounds a lot like we'll just be spending more money to have the same stuff as before and therefore it's all just a giant waste of time, I would argue that spending more money to have the same deal but as part of it haunted Toby Jug in a suit Nigel Farage doesn't get his MEP salary, actually, that's pretty worth it. But really, it's just yet another thing on the very long list of questions about why on earth we think Brexit is worth it. Also on that list is immigration. You remember that Brexit wasn't about immigration apparently, except it very much was? Well, that issue doesn't even stand anymore as net migration has moved by 51,000 since the Brexit referendum. I mean, who'd have thought the quickest way to reduce numbers of people coming here to live and work would be to have a government who promotes hostility towards them? (laughs) What? 
There is now also going to be a Home Office investigation into the controversial idea that foreign students should be counted in immigration figures, with new evidence suggesting that previous estimates of 100,000 students overstaying their visas per year looks like it might actually be more around 1,500. I mean, that's a pretty big difference in numbers, isn't it? Is this a skill foreign students have, you know, to be able to seem like there's more of them than there are? If that's the case, we should be getting loads more over to the UK so we can earn tons from hiring them out for events, you know, as crowd scenes in filming stuff or for US presidential inaugurations. Hopefully, students will be removed from being counted as part of the overall immigration figures, which will then cause an instant drop in them and also really help out the education system. Not that politicians are necessarily keen on reducing immigration figures, though. Uh, an investigation by politics.co.uk showed that 482 tip-offs during 2014-16 to to the Home Office Hotline for Immigration Enforcement were made by MPs. Yeah, rather than protect their constituents, they are actively shopping them in. It's a really nasty betrayal of trust, and I can't work out if they assume that with less constituents it'd just be easier to get voted back in next time because there'd be less door-stopping needed with less doors to stop at, and afterwards they'd have really reduced drop-in hours. I mean, if they really feel that way about the job, though, they should probably just do a Kezia Dugdale instead. Labour's Brexit stance is that they would now discuss staying in the single market. Or, well, it was their stance for a couple of days as Shadow Brexit Secretary and the only man to survive being bitten by a radioactive hush puppy, Keir Starmer, announced last week that a deal to remain in the customs union and single market should be left on the table as an option, but with a newly negotiated agreement. However, Labour MP Barry Gardner told the Today programme that Labour's stance was to have a customs union, not stay in the customs union. Yes, it seems as an opposition, Labour are keen to have a vague understanding of what they want, not the same understanding. Still, to be fair, as John McDonnell stated when I saw him do a Q&A in Edinburgh, it's very hard being in opposition when you don't know what you're in opposition to. And at the moment, it mainly seems like the best stance Labour could take that plays to their strengths would be that disgraced MP Liam Fox would only be allowed to talk when past the talking stick and then keep pointing out that any stick he holds is just a talking stick, not the talking stick. I look forward to updating you in a week's time when, as a country, the UK will still be going absolutely nowhere while somehow simultaneously plummeting downhill fast. Now, can you guess? Can you guess who this week is it that's leaving the UK because of Brexit? Because of Brexit! Yeah, it's two this week as both food workers and European flights appear to be disappearing, probably with one on the other post-Brexit. No, not flights on workers, idiot. I mean, how would that even work? The Food and Drink Federation says 31% of UK food businesses have already lost workers, and they say if workers continue to head back into the EU at this rate, they may struggle to produce enough food to feed the UK. Yes, we're very much biting the hands that feed us, and they're not providing guaranteed healthcare for those bites, so the hand owners are going home. And secondly, Michael O'Leary, owner of Ryanair, is demanding the government give him legal certainty by autumn that various bilateral treaties will be in place so European flights can continue coming into the UK after March 2019. While that is a very big and very important issue that needs to be sorted out ASAP or the UK is going to lose tons of flights and business, I do kind of also hope that the government say they will sort out a deal in advance for Ryanair, but only if they pay extra up front. And now, back to Anne. So the question then would be, uh, you know, if if the power comes from us, if, if we're the people that are supplying them with their collateral, but a lot of these companies yeah. aren't then paying taxes back into the UK. Um, so yeah. how do we or uh, where do you begin to enforce something like that? That's a problem that we've had in, in this country for quite some years now. It doesn't seem to be dealt with very effectively. Yeah. So my answer to that is that we have to... Um, we have to remember that there was a period in our history not very long ago 
between 1945 and 1971, when we managed the global financial system. And we did it, and we had an international financial architecture known as Bretton Woods, which subordinated the interests of the finance sector to the interests of democracies as a whole. And during that period, we had certain terms and conditions that we applied to finance. First of all, they could not cross borders willy-nilly without some without paying taxes or having some oversight by the authorities. So we brought offshore capital back on shore back in 1944-1945 with the introduction of Bretton, the Bretton Woods system. And we said to the big capitalists, you're not allowed to just move your money as you like from here to Brazil if it takes your fancy, because interest rates in Brazil are 8% and you can flood Brazil with cheap dollars and inflate her exchange rate and damage her economy. You know, no, you're not going to be allowed to do that. We're going to introduce taxes and they, where they're called capital controls. We're going to tax your flows across borders in order to, if you like, slow them down. And that's what the Robin Hood tax does. Right. It's sand in the wheels of the movement of capital. Now, we absolutely have to do that if we're going to persuade the Apples and the Amazons and the Facebooks to pay taxes here where they earn their profits, right? We can't, we can't force them to pay those taxes as long as we give them the freedom to take their money out tomorrow without any constraint whatsoever. And that's what we do right now. So for me, the biggest demand and, and, and the most radical, and as far as the finance sector is concerned, the most outrageous and threatening and revolutionary is to demand that offshore capital comes back onshore. Now, that's not exchange controls. Those are capital controls. Exchange controls is when you cannot take out more currency out of the country when you go on holiday than a certain amount. Capital controls are taxes on the flow of capital across borders. And unless you're a, a very rich person and you're moving huge sums of money across borders, you will never have to pay those taxes. We should demand that because then that will force Apple and all those and all the Silicon Valley Uber types to pay taxes for the activities that they undertake in our country here. Now, that's such a radical idea. <laughs> that it's hardly discussed in international uh, circles. But I want us to be talking about it as a civil society. And there are some economists who are beginning to say, oh, dear, if with this flow of money across borders in this way, it's all reckless, it's dangerous, it, it causes instability and volatility, and we're going to have to stabilize this stuff. And, of course, China, which doesn't mess with, with bankers and finance and the private sector and so on, China applies capital controls to stabilize her economy. When things are getting out of sync, she's just, for example, forced big Chinese capitalists to pull money out of Britain and take it back home because it's all got too unbalanced, right? And, and too much money is leaving. This is affecting the value of the currency and it's affecting their domestic policies. China's not messing with that. What do we do? We're sitting back here saying, yeah, you do as you like. You take your money, come and go as you please, wreck our economy. Fail to invest, don't pay your taxes. That's okay with us. We're just going to stay at home here and whinge about it. <laughs> and I think we've just got to change our tune. So for me, capital controls are number one. Secondly, the banks have to once more have their credit creation processes managed. And they've got to be, in my view, I would have a simple law would say, thou shalt not lend for speculative activity, for gambling on house prices or anything like that, thou shalt only lend for productive income generating activity. That would be my second law. And my third law would be 
thou shalt not lend at very high rates of interest. And the Bank of England and other institutions will have to work together to keep rates of interest across all lending very low. Because in my view, uh, while the banks, you know, everyone thinks interest rates are low at the moment, but they're only low for the banks. Nobody borrows from the Bank of England at 0.15%. I, I, I challenge you to go and find a loan at 0.15%. <laughs> Anyway, and given that prices, that our prices and wages are falling in real terms and that they're below where they were in 2006, 4% on a mortgage is a really very high rate of interest. And, you know, if you're a banker and you're buying at 0.15 and lending at 4, you're making a big, big bucks because, you know, you're not borrowing one mortgage you're, you're, or you're not lending one mortgage. You're lending a billion's worth of mortgages. And on those, you're making that massive differential between, one, you know, 0.25% and 4%. So, so I would argue. So those are my three laws. Manage flows of capital across borders, put sand in the wheels, manage credit creation, and manage interest rates. We do that, we'll get back to stability, we'll job creation, income will flow, debts will be able to be paid down, and the world will generally become more stable and the same. Now, everybody will tell you that's not possible. And I'm telling you, we've done it before, we can do it again. It's, it sounds. It sounds. I mean, it, to, to me, it just makes a lot of sense to put money into helping people produce things that will generate more money. It sort of, you know, boosts the economy to yes. help boost the economy. It doesn't. That sounds very yes. obvious to me as someone who's well, not aware of, of economics very much. Yeah. Well, that's why you mustn't be modest about how you understand this stuff, because of course it's perfectly sensible, you know. And the fact that you don't, you think that it might not be, or that you're embarrassed by that, shows that how just crazy our economic system is, you know. And we citizens have to just get a grip on this because they've messed up majorly. Anybody who looks at the 2007-9 the, the financial crisis and its aftermath, and the aftermath has been 10 years of the slowest recovery in, in economic history. Um, wages are falling, prices are falling, people have gone bust, lost their homes, lost their businesses. You know, there's been awful tragedies happen. You know, when you think about all that, and the economists regard that as an, as an appropriate model and as a good model, um, and they, they believe... And what's happening at the moment now is that the central banks are providing life support, if you like, to the, to the banks and the financial institutions... And the, and the economy is like a comatose body, you know, it's sort of half dead. And, and the central banks are pumping this life support in. As the minute they mention that they might withdraw the life support or that they might increase interest rates, the body deflates again. You know. So right now, as we see, you know, everyone say, oh, Europe's looking better. It's getting, you know, economic activities improving. That's right, because central banks around the world the Bank of Japan, the ECB, the Federal Reserve, and to an extent the Bank of England, are pumping something like $200 billion a month into the global financial system. Hell's bells, you know. If thing, nothing recovers as a result of that, then what's going on? And the tragedy is that, 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 that even that amount of money is leading to a very weak recovery. The minute they begin to talk about, you know, easing back on that, scaling back on those uh, those QE processes, the economy slumps again, you know, and it's going to again. I mean, this is, I believe all of these 
little inflations of activity, if you like, when things look they're getting better. We've had several of these since the crisis. I think you have a moment when people talk about green shoots and boom, it goes back again. And then the central banks reflate and then goes boom, back again. Because life support, we are we are living on life support. We haven't really fixed the system. Oh, dear. you've got me raving there. No, 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 not at all. It's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm really pleased. Uh, really fascinating. Um, I'm just I'm very aware of that you don't have much time, so I've got a couple of other yeah. questions for you. One's going to be very quick at the end. Um, but I just wanted yeah. to ask that you, it's one of the things that you mentioned again when I saw you do your talk was that you uh, that you said uh, things like Trump getting elected and I think probably also Brexit and things like that are a result of people not having faith in the politicians to deal with the economy and therefore kind of wanting yeah. to revert to a more nationalised system that keeps it within and yeah. um obviously as i know you're not uh, a fan of those sort of systems like, uh, of, of trump and things like that neither yeah. am i but is there perhaps an, an alternate way in which actually reducing closing borders would build a stronger economy if, if what you're saying bring you know about bringing offshore capitalism back yeah. onshore is there a a way of doing are we just doing it in a completely wrong way <laughs> is that what it <laughs> no i think that's absolutely so my argument is that that what people have experienced is that globalization and unmanaged borders and totally open borders has hammered them. They've lost their jobs. Property prices have gone bananas. Their kids can't find homes. Uh, university fees have gone through the roof. You know, all of the things we were promised by globalization have just not been delivered. And so the reaction, and it's a bad reaction, is a protectionist reaction. The Democrats, the social Democrats, the Tony Blairs of this world, opened up the borders, opened up barriers, deregulated the finance sector, talked about light touch regulation of the finance sector, um, allowed all of this to go on. I lost my job. We This happened to me. We got poorer. And it all looks grim. Well, if those politicians will not protect my interests, I will look for a strong man. And invariably, it's a man. In the case of Mrs. Le Pen, it's a woman like Donald Trump, to protect me against unbridled market forces. Now, for me, that's a reactionary response, but it's not an unexpected response. And the problem with it is that the public are looking not at what... They're looking at the tangible evidence of this. So they look, the thing they see at, at the time of the slump, 2007, when their own wages were falling and when the whole world was crashing around them, at that point, immigrants were coming into this country. So the correlation isn't with the crash in the financial sector and the financial... It's with, with my poverty and, and immigrants. And I therefore blame the immigrants, right? Now, it was not the fault of the immigrants at all, but it is always the most tangible thing. It's mm. your neighbour. If you've got a black neighbour or a Jewish neighbour or a, a Muslim neighbour, you blame him because he's nearby and you can touch and see him, right? You don't see the international financial system. You don't see the bankers. You don't see those guys. They're all, you know, they're invisible on the whole. But you're finding that your politicians aren't protecting you. So you look for a strong man, a nationalist. And that's what happened in the 30s when people turned to Hitler. They were being put through austerity on a grand scale in Germany in the 1930s by a social democrat government, the government of Mr. Brüning. And they said, well, we don't want to be unemployed. We don't want this misery. We've had enough. This man, Hitler, says he's going to look after us and we're going after him. And, you know, they worshipped him because he said he'd look after him. And, of course, they were misguided. But, but, you, but in a sense, we have to understand why they did that. Um, 
So I I am not in favour of, you know, I, I, first of all, I mean to say I'm an immigrant myself. I came to Britain 50 years ago from South Africa. I was trying to get away from apartheid as a young person. So, you know, I don't have a thing about immigrants. Um, and I do believe that, you know, migration can be a good thing and it can be a good thing for the economy as well. But I believe above all else that this must all be managed. We must manage flows of labour. We must manage flows of trade. We must manage flows of money. We can't just leave it all to something called the invisible hand. That, that's the recklessness of the globalisation model, basically. And when we say manage, that doesn't mean to say we have to block all migrants, but we have to say, look, we do have to manage this. We're a tiny island and there's a limit to what we can handle. Um, and, you know, we need... And, and But on the other hand, we're also are demographically changing. We might need more young people to keep us going. Let, let's make that decision democratically. Don't let's leave it to the invisible hand, the markets to decide. And that's what our politicians have... Our politicians have rubbed their hands of all this and said, nothing to do with me, Gov, it's the, it's the markets. And the people are saying, sorry, but we want you to take responsibility for managing our economies. Um, and I think that's, that's a good thing. Unfortunately, we're probably going to go the way of the fascists. And the, I mean, I have to say that I think the Donald Trump regime looks extreme. It becomes more fascist by the mm. day. And that is terrifying because of the size of the United States. You know, but but there is a middle way. There is a way of saying, yes, we can manage flows across borders. We can manage our economy. And we don't have to do this in the interest of um, markets. We can do this in the interest of the British people. And the same must be said about the interests of the Zambian people and the Malawian people. You know, we dump all our goods on those poor people and their markets and wipe out their farmers because we produce wheat and rice here at prices that they can't compete with and we destroy their farmers and then when we when the exchange rate goes up we starve them to death because they can't afford to buy our wheat anymore you know we've had really deleterious impacts this policy of just free flows across borders so yes i just think i'm not at all in favor of the kind of fascist approach which is a reaction to globalization but i do believe that we should go back to the Bretton Woods model, which was a model advocated by John Maynard Keynes, whom I do think is highly underestimated, largely underestimated, and manage our economies. It's not complicated. So just just like uh, as I know you're you're doing with your book and your talks, it's, it's people need an understanding of what the money is, and it might lead to more sensible decisions. Uh, yeah, well, I always argue, Tin, and that you can't change something you don't know about and you don't understand, hmm. and that's why we have to understand the monetary system. Well, on, yeah. on that note, I'll just have one more question for you, and it's a very quick one. In yeah. that, uh, obviously, apart from uh, your book and your Twitter and the Prime Economics website. Is there anyone else that you uh, recommend following or looking up for the listeners if they are interested in understanding economics and the financial system uh, better? Well, you should follow Steve Keen, uh, who is an Australian economist and a great mate of mine and who uh, has is, is on Twitter and has a website and so on. There are lots of very good economists out there. Joe Michel is another young economist you should follow. Uh, there's a wonderful woman, Daniela Gabor, who works on a shadow banking. Um, then there's uh, the organisation that I'm involved with, PEP, which is promoting economic, economic pluralism, PEP. And we've got a big conference on the 10th of September, oh, sorry, on the 14th of September, 
on 10 years after the crisis here in London. And so I recommend that you look up PEP 10 years after the crisis and uh, register for that. So, and if you follow uh, the um, the PEP uh, Twitter feed and, and website, you'll, the, there's a lot you could learn from that as well. So there's plenty out there. Um, and my, my Twitter feed, I use my Twitter feed in order to point people to other articles and organizations and individuals that I think are really helpful on these issues. Many thanks to Anne Pettifor for taking the time to speak to me for the podcast. Um, her new book is called The Production of Money, and I really couldn't recommend it enough. Um, within about two chapters, I felt I'd learned and understood more about the financial sector than I ever, ever had before. Um, and while you might say tin and you clearly knew nothing about it before, so it wouldn't have taken much, and you'd be right. But genuinely, Anne's book is so clearly written, much like her explanations in my interview with her, that if you, like me, feel you don't know enough about economics and money production and should, do go pick it up. Uh, it's called The Production of Money. It's available from all good books shops and no doubt some terrible ones as well you know where not everything's in alphabetical order and they've put crime fiction next to food which doesn't even make sense but do check out uh, primeeconomics.org which is the website Anne regularly contributes to and also Anne is on Twitter at Anne Pettifor that's A-N-N-P-E-T-T-I-F-O-R so do follow her there as well and the other people she recommends following are Steve Keen who's on Twitter at Prof Steve Keen that's K-E-E-N uh, Joe Michelle who is uh, at J-O-M-I-C-H-E-L-L and and Daniela Gabor, who is at Daniela Gabor, pretty much as it sounds. Um, and if you do want to go to the PEP event on the 14th of September in London, which does look fascinating, there are still tickets left at uh, www.themintmagazine.com forward slash events. And I will pop all of those things up on the Twitter and the Facebook groups as well, because I am a nice man like that. Um, as always, if you have anyone you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to interview someone about, please do drop me a line at Parbobro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can write it into a Caesar cipher and burn it into a series of crop fields, causing conspiracy theorists to decode it and think aliens listen to this show, forcing them all to don tinfoil hats and write the message on banners, and then protest outside my flat, causing me to finally see it. Again, as always, email is probably best. <laughs> And that is all for this week's episode of Partly Political Broadcast. Um, I know there was a lot to catch up on and I didn't quite do that, but I didn't want to make this episode go on forever. Um, but thank you tons for coming back and listening as we kickstart a whole new period of terrifying politics that I will do awful puns about. Please do give this show a review on iTunes or Stitcher or on the label of your vest so people can see it after PE. And please do donate to the Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash bro if you would like a recording of my latest solo show uh, that I've just performed at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, or if you just want to give me my with absolutely no rewards please do so at ko-fi.com forward slash bro and don't forget you can get in touch about pretty much anything at bro on twitter the partly political broadcast group on facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com and mostly please please do just spread the word about this podcast as that is the best way to get people listening to this thing i mean obviously spread the word that it's good don't tell everyone that it's awful that would be terrible um saying that all publicity is good publicity oh do what you like Big thanks, as always, to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all of the musics. Um, he has a new album out on the 29th of September called This Is Where It Gets Good, and you can pre-order that now, so please do. Uh, this is going to be back next week when David Davis will be texting from his phone in the middle of negotiations to complain that the EU keep wasting time. Thank you, goodbye! This week's episode was brought to you by several numbers that, thanks to Anne Pettifor, we all now understand and will wrangle for our own use like champions. No, not Sarah Champions, other better ones. Thanks, Anne.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.